Welcome to our weekly Wednesday that's become Wednesday night class. We are one day away. One day away from receiving the Torah on Har Sinai. One day away from celebrating the day that gave us all of the rest of the days that we celebrate. Without what, would ha what happens tomorrow night, there would be no Shabbat, no Pesach, no Yom Kippur, no Sukkot, Purim, Rosh Hashanah, or Hanukkah. It's because of tonight, it's because of what will happen tomorrow night, excuse me, that gives us everything we are. Our goal tonight as we prepare, as we remember the days that the Jewish people would prepare for Matan Torah three days before, before Shavuot. Our goal is to try to do our best tonight to put us in the frame of mind that we need to be in going into this holiday. See, our community is a very, I would say, very believing community. Very traditional community. Very much a community that believes in Hashem and loves in Hashem and is growing in so many ways. Our community is one that prays, that studies Torah, that tries to go to shul. Our community is religious and many people observant and very observant. But I think we have one challenge. One challenge that captures so many other challenges. And it's this challenge that we need to address as we're a day before Matan Torah, the day we receive the Torah. The challenge I would call is the everyone disease. That means we're all afflicted, or so many of us are afflicted, by what everyone is doing, what everyone is saying, what everyone is feeling. No matter if we're with a thousand people in a room, or we're alone in our home, we want to know what those thousand people are doing. And we get our thermometer, we get our decision and determiner about whether we, what we should be doing based on what everyone is doing. We have the everyone disease. I'd like tonight to try to solve that, to try to crack that problem. And I'm going to begin with the Gemara and Masechet Kedushin. The Gemara seems to have nothing to do with what we're talking about. But if you follow us for the next two minutes, you'll see how the Gemara's message, I believe, very much does. Here's what the Gemara says. Gemara says, if there is a rabbi, is a rabbi allowed to be mochel his own kavod? Is a rabbi allowed to forgive his own honor? Is a rabbi allowed to tell a student, it's okay, sit in my seat? A father and a mother are allowed. But is a rabbi allowed? Asked the Gemara. And the Gemara says, yes, I think that he is allowed to forgive his own honor. And allowed to maybe tell the students, don't stand up when I walk in. Why? What's the proof? The proof is that Hashem, that God gave up of his honor. God went in front of the Jewish people. God led the Jewish people. He was kind of a shepherd in the desert. If Hashem would belittle himself to be a tour guide in the desert for the people, then a rabbi all the more so could give in on his honor. If God could give in on his honor, so can the human being. So can a rabbi. 
And then Rava comments and says, no, your proof from Hashem is not a good enough proof to a rabbi. Why not? Says the Gemara, because over there, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God, Dilehu, this is His world, V'Torah Dilehi, and it's His Torah. So God, who it's His world and it's His Torah, He has the right and the authority and the ability and the flexibility to be able to forgive His honor. But a rabbi, why are you respecting a rabbi? Because the Torah he studied. Uh, but a rabbi, Torah Dilehi, is the rabbi, does he own his Torah to forgive the honor? So if a rabbi wants to tell a student, sit in my seat, he doesn't have the right to say that. Because it's Hashem's Torah that he represents. And he doesn't have the right and the ability and the power to be flexible on the respect of God's Torah. Why can't a student sit in his seat? Because if you have to respect the Torah that the rabbi represents, the rabbi can't be flexible with that Torah. And this is not my point. The Gemara's answer is my point. Amar says, you're mistaken. In Torah Dilehi, it is the rabbi's Torah. You say, what gives the rabbi the right to forgive his honor if he represents the Torah? It's not his, it's God's mistake. It's his Torah. The rabbi owns his Torah. That Gemara, I believe, is saying something so important. That when we make Torah part of our lives, it has to become mine. I need to own it. Own it so much that I'm in control of the Torah I'm learning. This is the third time I'm mentioning this this week. But I need to because it's exactly our point. On Sunday night, there was a big event, I'm sure you heard about it, called Moments. And at that event, many rabbis in the community were asked to tell over their defining moment in their life. I'm going to share with you mine, which is partly my point, but I'm going to share more than that. That night, I got the opportunity to speak and I said, I said, I'll tell you my moment. My moment was in ninth grade. I was in ninth grade, I lived in Dio's, cute little Dio boy. You know how Dio boys, we had our big front lawn and we're very cozy and we love our house and we love our parents and we love to stay home and very warm and Baruch Hashem loved my upbringing. And now for ninth grade, I went out of town for yeshiva. Now, I don't know if you know how scary that is. You're a 13 year old boy and you're gonna go sleep in a dormitory. And we came home at first every Shabbat, then every other Shabbat, then once every fourth week. And so the yeshiva had its routine, it had its system, it set schedule. And I was a great student. I did exactly what they asked me to do. I came to praying on time, 9.30 in the morning was learning time, I came to learning time, ended at 1, had an hour and a half lunch break, good, then I came back at 2.30, I did good well on my tests, I was a good student, I followed instructions, I didn't talk out of line, I was respectful. You'd imagine I was a good student, I was, I was like the right, good kind of kid, no, so I was a good kid. So now at night, we had an hour and a half learning at night, I would learn at night, exactly. But all of my breaks, I would use, because I was a kid. So the whole breakfast break, I'd be eating and talking to my friends. The whole lunch break, hour and a half. I'd be playing ball and playing basketball outside and inside once it got a little colder. I'd play baseball, catch, I love baseball, deal kids all do. Dinner break, hour and a half, I'd hang out with the friends, talk about the Yankees and the Giants, etc. 
I remember the day. The day was I remember the day. The day was in the middle of the fall time. And I had my glove in my hand. I had just had a long catch with my friends. And I said, you know what? No one's gonna respect this. No one, this doesn't make you special, playing ball every way, every available minute and getting, you know, 90s and 100s on your tests. What makes you special is when you take ownership, when you are motivated, when you are inspired. And I remember putting down my glove on the ground and making the decision that day, put it away, and I said, now I'm learning, not because of my teachers, not because of my parents, not because of my friends, but because I want to be something great. And from early in the morning till late at night, learned the whole day every day for years and years and years. 15 minutes of breakfast, 15 minute lunch, 15 minute dinner, that's it. And why I'm looking back and I keep thinking about that moment this week, because I'm looking back and I keep saying to myself, really everything changed on that day. My whole life changed. Who I married, would marry changed. How I raised my children would change. Everything that I'd be involved in today was, was in essence decided or projected on that day. Because on that day I decided it's not about the job, it's about being inspired inside. And here's what inspired me on that Sunday, this past Sunday night, three days ago, is that I got a chance to hear other rabbis speak. And each one of their stories were very different than mine. But they all were the same in this one way. It was the moment that that rabbi decided to make a commitment, to make Torah his, to own his own life, to stop floating like a leaf in the water and wherever the lake takes you to go. You see, the only and the main hard part is the commitment, is the determination that this is going to be mine. My Torah life, my religious life is mine. I don't care about the everyone. And you're talking to someone who does care about other people. I care about what people think. I appreciate comments. I feel bad when people, I do, I care about people think you know me well enough to know that I care about what people think. But still, that can't determine who I am. I'm going to sit and wait to see what my friends are doing. I have one friend that I grew up with that's doing what I'm doing today. Does that matter? Is that relevant? For better or for worse, it just doesn't matter. I think to myself, imagine, just imagine if in ninth grade, because I had some friend who wanted to have a catch with me in the backyard, imagine if in ninth grade, I held myself back from doing what I was supposed to do and from having that motivation because I was worried about those three kids who wanted to talk Yankee baseball. Are you kidding? Don't get me wrong. I still like sports and I'll still throw a play basketball. I still will every now and then. But now it's my terms. Do you have that? Because that's what it means to celebrate this holiday. As the Gemara then quotes the Pasuk in the first chapter of Tehillim, The Rabbi, the Tamil Chacham, any person who's involved in Torah, the good person, is learning Torah, his own Torah. 
It's his own. He takes ownership of it. It becomes his. I think I told that story enough times. Usually I tell you my wife is going to comment. My wife is in the room. Honey, did I tell the story too many times already? It's okay. It's all good. The Pasuk says that the Jewish people, as they arrived at Har Sinai, they traveled from the city, the area called Refidim in the desert, and they arrived to Har Sinai, the place that they would receive the Torah, the place that the holiday of Shavuot would be born from. And Rashi on that Pasuk makes a comment that I think is critical to our point. Rashi says, just like when they arrived at Har Sinai, they made Teshuvah, they repented and they changed. So too, when they left Refidim, when they left the city before, they were already determined and committed and decided to change. Why what, what, what do they have to decide to change when they left the other city, I, that, that other area of Refidim? I get it, when they get to Har Sinai, they have to be new people. But what, what, what had to happen when they left there? Says the famous commentator Chumash the Nitziv, he says, because it's not about the fact that they did change. What's more important to us is that they made a decision to change. Once they made that decision, then the rest would follow. I'll give you a cute example. I don't know if it's cute, but an important example. So right after this holiday, Pesach, I was looking around my house and I was seeing a little too much laziness. And I'll tell you about one of my sons. It's actually the son that I was pointing to to stop making noise in the corner before. He's 13 years old. His school has a couple of hours of schooling these days on, on the, over the phone. And other than that, he's sitting on the couch. Not this one, that one. You can't see it, but that couch. That couch has got like a cozy corner. I don't know if you have one of those couches that have those corners. It's got a cozy corner. He's sitting on the couch and he's reading his book for hours. And I was like, this is not okay. It's not okay. It's just not okay. We've got to be productive. We have to accomplish. So I just, my wife and I had a little idea. We said, how about... If you make a little program for your younger siblings, it's three younger siblings. He says, okay, I like it, I'm going to do it. That was the whole conversation. Since then, I don't know if it's five or six weeks, every single weekday, that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for an hour and a half, he makes a whole program of learning and prizes and reading and the parashah and all that every day for his three younger siblings. And I said, you know what, how priceless that was? Is that he took ownership of his own life. We don't remind him. We don't tell him. He reminds us, I need tickets. You got to buy me tickets. You have to get me prizes for Amazon. He's, it's his thing. There's nothing like having, making it yours. I just spoke about you. There's nothing like making it yours. And then all of a sudden, his whole day changed because he set up cover talk over the phone and other learning over the phone and it became a different day. There's nothing like drawing that line in the sand. And on that past Sunday night, hearing other rabbis tell their story when they were 17, when they were 18. And you're like, they're a 17-year-old kid, they're an 18-year-old kid. Why does that story matter? You know why it matters? Because those people help shape the community today. Just because of one decision to own it. So Hashem, the Pasuk is telling us, just as important as it was, for them to do Teshuvah when they arrived at Har Sinai, it was equally as important, maybe even more important, for them to decide to do Teshuvah when they came to Har Sinai. That's why we say in the Haggadah Pesach, Ilu Kervanu Lufnei Har Sinai. 
Hashem in the Dayan, and we say, God, if all you did was bring us to Har Sinai, we did not receive the Torah, Dayan. It would have been enough. What's that? Understand that. If we got to Har Sinai and didn't get the Torah, it would have been enough. How would that have been enough? The whole point was to get the Torah. If we went to Har Sinai and didn't get the Torah, we just would have been 600,000 people staring at a mountain. How would that have been anything? The answer is to ask the question means you don't understand what happened. The answer is what we just told you is that the greatness was not just being at, not just receiving the Torah, but the fact that when we arrived at Har Sinai, we made a commitment to be different. That itself was achievement. That itself was Dayeno, even before we got the Torah. Just the determination to make it Torah to, to make it mine. This is what the holiday is about. It's about this commitment. I'm not in the everybody business. I don't know what everybody's doing. I frankly don't care what everybody's doing. And maybe I care in certain regards, but when it comes to the things that are the essence of my life, my religion, my observance, what makes me me, my learning, I'm gonna wait for somebody else. I'm gonna sit and look around and say, what are you doing, what are you doing? And here's the promise that God made to the Jewish people when they arrived at Har Sinai. Because the Pasuk then says, If listen, you will listen to my voice. What does it mean, if listen, you will listen? Says Rashi, If you make the commitment to listen, I'll make it easy for you to hear me. Hashem makes us a promise that all I need from you is the genuine commitment. I will make the rest easy. And as she calls the famous quote, Kol chalot kashot. Hashem says the beginning is hard. You know why I make the beginning hard? Because I need to see that your commitment is real. I need to see your really determined determination, I'm gonna do this. Once you do it, it starts to get much easier. And in talking to some of those rabbis that night and seeing the success that they've achieved, I said, wow, one little commitment. When you were 17 years old, or when you were 18 years old, and it reshaped the community. You know what the problem is? We have become so lazy, it is crazy. I don't know if you're feeling it, but I am feeling it everywhere. I mean, tonight someone sent me a text before a class. Rabbi, make us an uh, enjoyable class tonight. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I feel the mood. So I sat down for dinner. And, no, but I'm feeling I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So I'm sitting down at, at dinner tonight. And I'm like, guys, I, I got to tell something funny tonight. So one of my kids says, oh, you mean, so why don't you tell the joke of the chicken that crossed the street? Uh, I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, good. Ten minutes later, another one of the kids comes down to dinner. I'm like, I, I got to tell something funny tonight. So he says, why don't you tell the joke of the chicken across the street? I'm like, guys, the joke of the chicken across the street isn't even funny. Yeah, this is all you can come up with? This is all you can think about? Like, we're so just, uh, come on! My, one of my five-year-old son, he's crying. Dad, what do you mean? I need a fork. What do you mean you need a fork? The, the drawer is six feet away from you. Go, go get it? Oh, wow, I didn't know. 
You know how lazy we've become? Some guy sent me an item. He says, I asked someone, what's his plans? He said, lunch. I said, what are your long-term plans? He said, dinner. And that's why it's so hard for us to make the commitment. It's hard for us to say, I'm ready. I'm going to do something. I'm going to make Torah, my life, different in regards to Torah and religion. The Gaona Vilna says, there's a pasuk that's the parashat Bereshit. Hashem says about the Yetzirah, Lepetach Atat Rovetz. The Yetzihara is waiting for you at the door. Says the Gaon of Vilna. The Yetzihara is waiting for you at the door. When you're about to leave and about to get started, that's when he's ready to pounce. That's the hardest part. But once you're out the door and you're on to doing your project and doing your work and you're in the middle of building your goal, the Yetzihara stands back. He can't stop you. And if you've ever been involved in a project or something good, you know what I mean. At the beginning, to get started, to initiate, was tough. But then once you got started, you started to get on a roll. And also Hashem makes things happen. And He makes it easier. And you got a friend who's doing the same thing. And also an opportunity to get to do more, all of a sudden just starts to arrive. Let me give you an analogy that's very famous. It's true. And... So fascinating, and its lesson is so real. An elephant. How is an elephant held down in a zoo? You've gone to a zoo before. You watch an elephant. What do you think protects you from that elephant? Do you think it's that that little chain link fence that's in front of you? That's the same fence that you have in your backyard. You think that's what's protecting you from the elephant? So let me tell you what it is. It's fascinating. I'm assuming many of you heard it before, but it's fascinating. What it is, is when the little elephant is young, they bring the elephant to the zoo. Right when it's born, or little after it's born, it's a little guy. And they put a chain around the elephant's leg. And maybe the chain is 40, 50, 60 feet long. And then the other end of the chain, they bang into the ground with a peg into the ground. And so this little elephant starts walking, and as he's walking, he's held down by the chain. And he tries to pull past the chain, and he can't get past the chain, because he's little. And so, okay, but at least he can walk in his 50, 60 feet of radius around the peg, he can walk. As the elephant gets older and older and older, and finally becomes like two tons, the elephant can easily rip that chain out of the ground. The peg, it's a chain, but he's two tons. The chain can't hold him. But you know what happens? He never tries. Because since when he was young, he couldn't do it. He gave up. And in his brain, he thinks all he could walk is the 50, 60 feet. It's so safe that they don't need barely anything else between you and the elephant other than that chain that can't even hold him. But it's the chain that he thinks can hold him. And he thinks he's limited. And he thinks that's how far he goes. And therefore his whole life, that's how far he goes. How crazy is that? But how real is that? 
How many human beings do you know that are that same way? They have this little chain around their ankle and they think they're limited and they never have the guts, the courage, the charisma, the commitment, the determination to get up and go past the chain. Rip that thing out of the ground and keep going. You're two tons today. You're so much stronger than you were 10 years ago. You can accomplish so much more. The world has so much more opportunity. It's at your fingertips. I can't even tell you how much easier it is to do, but so few people want to. So many people are just sitting on their couch telling bad jokes. Come on. Get up. And you know when I saw the proof? Everybody's been talking for the past 10 weeks. Can't wait till Shul opens again. I can't wait till I have a minyan again. I can't wait to have a minyan again. So now a lot of minyanim have started in backyards and things like that. And even in some shuls, since the law allows. And you know what's happening? No one will admit this, but this is the truth. Some people are very eager to go. And a lot of people are not. And I'm not talking about the people who believe that it's still not the right time or people who believe that it's still dangerous or people that are older. I'm not talking about that. There are regular young people who would talk to their neighbor two feet away from each other but won't come to a backyard with a mask. And it's not because of what the doctors say. Because most doctors would agree at this point that a backyard with social distancing and masks and all the precautions with a limited amount of people, 10, 11 people, would be okay. Why aren't they going? Because they got lazy. Because the chain is on their leg. And they almost said, ah, you know what, I can get away with it. I can't tell people to narrow my schedule. I'm like, oh, but they're like, what? Your schedule? You kidding me? You haven't prayed in Yana 10 weeks and you won't get up out, you won't get up out of your bed or out of your car or out of your office or off your couch. You, you won't go and try to make this happen? I want to tell you something that I think is powerful in this regard from Aaron Cutler. Aaron Cutler says that spirituality and growth is the opposite of the way you would think, which means that normally if I lift, if I have a hard time lifting up something that's 20 pounds, it's going to be much harder for me to lift up something that's 50 pounds or 100 pounds. If I can't do 20, I can't do 100. If I was going into the ocean to swim and in the first 10, 15 feet, I can't swim, I'm 10 times more frightened to go 2,000 feet in. He says, but with religion, it's the opposite. It's hard to pick up 20 pounds, but once you pick up 20 pounds, it's easy to pick up 100 pounds. It's hard to get started, but once you do, Hashem makes it easier. You know why He makes it easier? Because as you're getting, as the more you lift, the closer to Him you're getting. The closer to Hashem you're getting, the easier He makes it for you. So we're about to go into a unique holiday of Shavuot. How are you going to feel the holiday? There's no matzah to eat, there's no shofar to hear. For most cases, there's no shul to even go to. There were very few, if any, classes to learn Torah all night. So what are you going to do? How are you going to make Shavuot into Shavuot? Pesach was easy. You had a Haggadah, even though maybe you were alone or with two people or just 
you and your wife or you and your husband or just you and your kids. But at least you had a Haggadah, you had Matzah, you had Maror, you had four cups, you had a Haggadah, you had Peso. Every other holiday is easy. But now you're going to be home with barely any shul, if you have shul, barely a minyan outside, no overnight learning, no shofar, no matzah, no maror, no sukkah, no, no menorah. How are you going to make Shavuot Shavuot? Or are you just looking forward to a two-day weekend? How are we going to make Shavuot Shavuot? The answer is with exactly what we're saying tonight. You're going to make it Torah Torah. You're going to make a commitment to make Torah yours. To blaze your own path. To own it. To make it where Rabbah said, yes, Torah Dilehu. It is his Torah. Where you're going to say, Hashem, I am ready to go. And because I'm really ready to go, not I'm from my couch, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Hashem, because I'm ready to go, you're going to make it easier for me to get going and to keep going and to keep growing. And I will tell you, any person who has a moment like the one I described to you about what other rabbis mentioned that night, every person will tell you, every person who has a moment in their youth where they were inspired or motivated to build it from within, I'll bet you every one of them accomplished more than they ever thought they would at that age. That if you would have told them one day you're going to lift a million pounds, they would say, what? I can barely lift 20. But that's how it works. This is completely up to you. This is completely in your hands. Doesn't have to do with any recipe, doesn't have to do with calzones or deal or sambusak or cheesecake or whether your daughter is allowed to come over or not allowed to come over, whether you could go to your parents or not go to your parents. Could you sell? It has nothing to do with that. It's just about you. The Nefesh Hayim writes, I'm going to conclude with a thought and a little story. The Nevesh Hayim writes, this is one of the great authorities on Torah of the last two centuries. He writes that if a person just wakes up in the morning with a real strong commitment to make Torah happen that day, Hashem will help make it happen. And it will happen. Now that's a hard thing to say. But you wake up in the morning with a real commitment. Not, I'm going to try, I hope to. A real commitment to make Torah happen that day, Hashem will make it happen for you. Because all Hashem wants is for you to get out the door. All Hashem wants is for you to rip the peg out of the ground. All Hashem wants is for you to make a commitment in Shamoa. And then Hashem says, I'm committed to Tishme'u. Right, I read something today that's unbelievable. Yahushua. Yahushua used to, it's famous, used to take care of the benches in wherever Moshe Rabbeinu was teaching. Yahushua ben Nun. Wherever Moshe Rabbeinu was teaching. Do you know that Yahushua was made fun of when he was young? He was degraded and embarrassed because he wasn't very intelligent. But you know what happened to Yoshua? He wasn't so smart, but he was very committed. 
And he said, I am going to serve Moshe Rabbeinu until I become it. And then it happened. What I'm telling you is that you need to be ready to make a commitment that's beyond what you think you can do. A commitment that's harder than you think. Not to pick up 20 pounds, to pick up 50. A commitment that says it's going to come from within. Not, you're going to text someone tonight. Did you hear what Abba said? What do you think? No, I don't care what they think. What do you think? What are you ready to do? How committed to it are you? Because your Shabbat will not depend on whether you have your kids or don't have your kids or whether it rains or doesn't rain. That's not what Shabbat is going to depend on. Your Shabbat is going to depend simply on this one idea. How willing are you to commit? Let me tell you one last story. And then we're going to wish you a happy holiday and hopefully we'll see you again next week. I mean, if you call this seeing you, I'm seeing basically a, uh, I'm looking at a phone. <laughs> but hopefully somehow, I appreciate very much that you tune in. I appreciate that you do every week. I appreciate that you come on and you listen. And the fact that you do is already a testament to the fact that you have this burning flame inside of you already. We're good. I'm going to tell you a story. There was once in the 1980s when the Iron Curtain was still iron, when Russia was run by very much the Soviet Union, full fledged communism, and the KGB. There were these righteous Jews within Russia who did everything they can to spread Torah. And there were righteous Jews in America who did everything they could to help them. Our story today is about a man named Nachman. Nachman in the mid-1980s made a decision, decided, I'm going to go help these people. And so, Nachman started to work with the people who were connected there, and he said, I'm going to do whatever I can do. He set up a trip. He's going to bring, they had a bunch of things that they needed him to do on this little mission he's going to go on. He's going to go into Soviet Union, into Russia, into the heart of the KGB. He needed, one of the things he needed to do was deliver a lot of money and so on. He gets all dressed up, he's ready with his passport and everything he needs. He lands in the past, he lands in the airport in the USSR. The minute he gets off the plane, sort of hiding himself as much as he can and his whole Jewishness hidden as much as possible, wearing a big Russian coat and a Russian hat, looking like everybody else. He steps out of the plane and on into the terminal and he feels like there's a thousand eyes looking at him from everywhere. He holds onto his suitcase trying to look as nonchalant as he could. And he leaves the airport and it's frigid cold. I mean, freezing cold. Russia in the winter, freezing. But he's well prepared, he's got the codes, he's got everything he needs. One of the missions he was given was to take a manila envelope that had a lot of money in it and deliver it to a specific person. And you can't just go and deliver a manila envelope in the middle of broad daylight in Russia to just another Jewish person. So here was the plan. 
he was supposed to go to an apartment building and look down and see at a certain street corner with his binoculars and that person be waiting there at 2 in the afternoon. If the man is standing still, you give him the money. If he stretches out his hands, it means he knows that the KGB is around and you just go back to your hotel and come back the next day. So the first day he's there at 2 o'clock, he goes to the spot, he's, look, he gets that apartment building, he pulls out his binoculars, he, sure enough, he sees the man at the corner, but the man has his hands stretched out. Obviously, there were officers around and they were looking. So he goes back to the hotel. Next day, he does the same thing. He looks binoculars. This man is obviously a very experienced man, this man on the street corner. He's standing there once again. Again, arms are stretched out. He goes back to the hotel. The next day, he goes up again to the same apartment building, looks down binoculars, and sees the man is standing still. He says, okay, here's my chance. He goes racing now. He says, let me calm down. He has the middle envelope hidden inside of his jacket, and he walks to the street corner, and he hands, he sees this man, his name is Slava. Slava is this old, little bit older Russian man, and he's standing there in the cold, and he hands him the manila envelope quickly, and the man takes the envelope. As he hands it to me, he asks the man, he says, what do you need this for? He says, there are children in Russia that go to school and are taught to never believe in God. He says, we make programs in the afternoon to teach them about Hashem. He says, but we need to give them candy to bribe them to get them excited. He says, and candy is very expensive in Russia. So I'm going to use this money to buy candy to enable us and my team to teach Torah to these kids. As Slava takes out his hands to take the manila envelope, Nachman realizes that a couple of Slava's fingers are missing on both hands. See, so Slava, what's that? He says, I was sent to Siberia for 20 years. Siberia is freezing cold, and I lost a few fingers from frostbite. So now Nachman says, and Slava is saying this like a cold Russian. So now Nachman says to me, he says, one second, I don't understand. You were sent to Siberia for 20 years, and you're still doing this? You're coming out here in the middle of the day trying to figure out KGB, not KGB, just to get cash in order to buy candy for kids to learn Torah. And Slava then got passionate, took his finger, his hands, each one missing a couple of fingers, and grabs Nachman by the lapels, and he says, he says to him, and these are the exact words: "Is there a bishter nit verd zitzin fatzvonsik yor in Siberia?" Is God not worth sitting 20 years in Siberia? A man in elder age who's already been there for 20 years, missing fingers, coming to a street corner to get candy, money for candy for kids. Nachman would say, he says, anytime I was hesitant, I would think about that line. Is the Abishtim Nidver Zitzin Tvonsik Yor in Siberia? Is God not worth sitting 20 years in Siberia? That means God's not worth my commitment? Is Hashem not worth you lifting 50 pounds? Is Hashem not worth you testing to rip that chain and that peg out of the ground and seeing how far you can go? Is Hashem not worth you making a decision to make a Torah Torah, to make a your Torah? 
Is Hashem not worth you trying to say at least in Shamoa, I'm going to listen Hashem so that you can make it easy for me to be Tishma'u. Is Hashem not worth it for us not just to celebrate the Torah and Harsinah, but to celebrate the fact that we got to Harsinah, which means to celebrate the fact that we made the commitments necessary to receive that Torah. You were given, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest gift humanity has ever received. The world is completely different because of this gift. Is it hard to be committed to it? Or are you going to be like an elephant who's attached to a chain, who's waiting for everybody else? Happy holidays.